0: This talk is about resting the mind before it falls into extremes. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes. And this is all about equanimity, that balance of mind. So I speak about this because, of course, we need a large measure of this balance of mind, of this ability to rest the mind and heart before it falls into extremes. We need a large measure of this to do our practice, to sit here in the quiet, to notice what arises and passes away, and stay open to it, explore what's happening in the body-mind when we're on the cushion. And also, of course, this training here on the cushion gives us a great deal of practice to be able to be in the world as uh, the extremes happen in the world, the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows, and to be able to stay open to those things also. So how can we do that without closing down in denial or aversion, Mm -hmm. resistance? How can we do that without our attachment when we insist that it be otherwise? Or if it's pleasant, we cling to it and want it to stay. It's really hard to do. And so as I uh, talk about this, I'm always reminding myself, and I want to make it really clear that I'm no expert at this. It's something that is a work in progress for me as well. All ways that we react to life, either... Uh, situations in life or um, moment-to-moment experiences of life. When we react without much understanding, when we react without keeping the mind just opened and balanced, this, of course, is called reactivity. And this reactivity is the direct opposite of equanimity. So, In talking about equanimity, of course, I'm going to cover the subject of reactivity. A subjective experience of the heart and mind when it's in equanimity is that one feels open, the heart feels open. When I say heart, I mean mind also. It feels spacious, and within that open spaciousness, there's a balance So it doesn't feel like some precarious being on a razor's edge. It's more like a very wide stance. There's a lot of clarity in that because the mind isn't constantly throwing up reactivity. So there's a lot of stillness of mind. In that stillness, there's some clarity. So because of that clarity... And the absence of the ripples of reactivity, there's an ability to see clearly what's really going on here. And so that's what we first take in. What's really going on here? We don't get overwhelmed by the reactivity to what's going on. We're able to take in what's really going on in in that experience. And to see what's going on, without being caught in it at all. Neither caught in the outer experience, which can be uh, difficult to bear, or the inner experience, which is, might be in reactivity to the outer experience. So when the mind and heart is in equanimity, it doesn't mean that nothing's going on inside. It doesn't mean that there's this cold aloofness or there's an emotional emptiness. There's a lot going on. There's this kind of clear lens that sees whatever is going on. And it's not pushing it away out of resistance, nor is it clinging to it out of attachment because we insist that it be a certain way or we want it that way because it's so pleasant. In fact, there's a warmth of compassion if if whatever is happening is difficult. There's an ability to open to compassion to that situation. There can be a full connection with what's happening. Compassion gives you that connection. I'll talk about compassion another night. But it's said that true compassion... Um, Actually, the forerunner of true compassion is equanimity. So I thought to speak about equanimity first. Equanimity can give us the fullness of wise understanding. When we see all the details without the lens of attachment or aversion, which are the forms of reactivity, then the full details can be seen. And when those truthful details can be seen in, in that kind of clarity, we can make an assessment of how to respond and then we, we respond. Maybe the response is immediate, you know, because the equanimity is that strong. Maybe the response takes some time because we have to think it over. Maybe it takes five minutes. Maybe it takes, you know, five hours or five days. But I'm, I'm clearly not saying that there's an absence of response, which I, I want to reiterate during this um, discourse. There is definitely a response, but first there's a clear seeing without the lens of attachment or aversion, which is really important before we respond. So there can be the usual ups and downs of life, sometimes they're really intense, sometimes they're really subtle. We experience the eight vicissitudes of life, which is, those are usually um, spoken about in connection with this talk of equanimity. The eight vicissitudes we'll often hear about are praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. Those are all the ups and downs. There are many um, various sub-ones of those, but those are the main categories. So when there there isn't um, a reactivity to praise, gain, pleasure, or fame, that means that there is no clinging to it. There's an understanding that this experience is wonderful, yes, we don't have to deny that. But if we cling to it, they'll be suffering. And there's not a resisting or denying of blame, loss, pain, or disrepute. Of course, we're not denying it, but we're also not pushing it away because that brings uh, suffering as well. So in the mind of uh, a person or when... There's a situation when in our minds there's even momentary equanimity. We can open to any of this without a big drama. We don't have to be um, drama kings or queens about any situation in life. But I must admit that <laughs> that's how it goes sometimes. That, that's how it happens with us. The mind and heart make room for whatever's happening. This, too, is part of life. Praise is part of life. Blame is part of life. Gain is part of life. Loss is part of life. And so forth and so on. Um, Just a simple example of this is uh, when we're giving a teaching somewhere and... um, at some places the the, uh, request isn't so clear to not write so many notes, like it's been very clear here. (laughs) And so every time we give a talk, there are some notes of praise, and for the very same talk, there are some notes of blame, you know, that I don't agree with you about this point, or that was a wonderful talk, and etc., etc. And so we... As we go on through the years, we are trained to look at the note and just say, oh, that goes in the praise basket and that goes in the blame basket. And if there's just going to be both, no matter what you say. They'll, they'll be both. You can't please everybody all the time. So everything is part of life. And so we, we just get to know that, you know, Sometimes we make as Dharma friends, we make the comments to each other when something happens, either gain or loss, we just say, "Gain and loss, and then then there's some you know some understanding. The mind just opens wide around it, or um, you know there's a lot of pleasure in in one's life right now. Maybe the children are all doing okay, <coughs> knock on wood, you know for now, and we're enjoying it and then one of my mother friends reminds me um pleasure and pain you know it it's 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 wonderful enjoy it and uh it, it's not going to last you know it might take another week or another month and um there's you know a phone call about something else that's happening so we face it with patience another quality that comes along with uh, equanimity, Um, seeing with patience, facing whatever there is to face with patience. So the Dharma gives many stories from various metaphors in nature that help us to see this. Uh, One of them that really hit home for me that actually a Tibetan master gave an example of is... um, It's like sky or the clear space that can contain anything and everything. It doesn't reject or reject whatever comes into that space. It allows a transience of whatever is happening through that space. So this Tibetan master gave an example of if you take paint and you you throw it into space or throw it into the sky, you can... You can see it, you know, arise and pass away. The space doesn't hold on. It isn't sticky to it if it considers it beautiful or pleasant. Nor does it reject it if it considers it to be a mess or, you know, not so pleasant. It just receives it, it comes, and it goes. And so that's kind of a metaphor of what can happen in the mind when equanimity is there. The experience can come up and there's a deep understanding that knows that it will go. If it's pleasant, we don't have to suffer because we're clinging to it. If it's unpleasant, we don't have to suffer because we're pushing it away. So if the mind is like that, clear and spacious, it allows the ability to notice everything not only clearly but in in an, from another angle to notice it honestly to to not cover it up and say oh you know this is really good that that's happening this this is really this pain is happening to me because um you know it's really good this this pain is really good but i mean first we have to say it's painful it's really painful don't you know don't try to cover it up with some Honey to try to make it into something else, but to really experience it and honestly name it for what it is. And we may, with wisdom, see it to be more than that, but when we kind of cover it up, we're not seeing it honestly. You know, a simple example of that is when something happens in our lives, it's really painful. And someone comes to, to me or to someone else and says, um, You know, I know it's really hard, and you know, somebody just wants to help you or give you some strokes or something. And we say, It's really all right. I'm really fine. I'm really fine. It's really cool. But it's not. It's really painful. It, it feels awful. And so, just to be able to say that, the honest truth about it, But at the same time, not to, um, you know, have so much aversion that it's slathered in aversion also, but to honestly see it that way. This is what equanimity helps us to do. Not only to notice the outer events of the world clearly, but to notice the inner events of this inner world clearly. When the mind isn't affected by delusion when we're covering it up with something else, by greed, when we're wanting something pleasant to remain, or by aversion, when it's unpleasant and we're pushing it away, then we can uh, know what clear action to take and how to take that action. Then our words and our deeds can have a powerful healing and nourishing effect on others when it's like that. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, of course, is a great model of how he navigates, uh, how we see he navigates the outer world and how he's probably navigating the inner world with a lot of compassion, a lot of equanimity. So he says that in that state of mind, you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason while keeping your inner happiness so it's a state of mind that clearly sees all the details without any lens. And uh, so he's been a great example to, to all of us, of course. Uh, kind of a more um, close example of someone I know personally, a dear friend of ours who has cooked a lot of retreats with us at different retreat places and a lot of retreats on Maui. Um, he's usually been in the role of the um, the head cook and always been great and helpful to us and um, has given me permission to tell this story. I've told it many times. There was one time, the first time that another cook came on board to album actually another yogi and um, this yogi was very good hearted, is a very good hearted person, really wanted to help out so became his assistant cook and had a lot of good ideas about cooking and too many ideas for the head cook, you know, just always saying why don't we do it this way instead of that way and it kind of overwhelmed our friend who just had his own way of doing things and went about it really well. They're both really fine, generous people, and it was just a personality thing I, we we all saw at that time. So it got to the point of this head cook, the senior cook, he wanted to leave. And I was really worried because then I'd end up being the cook in that situation. <laughs> um, there, there wouldn't be very many other people to call upon, so um, I really had to speak with him, you know, every day and how he was feeling and letting me know what was going on. And we were doing metta and some of the brahmavihara practices. And so we talked to him about equanimity, just keep his mind as open as he could and balanced as he could around it. And he's, he was very receptive to, to hearing all that and really wanted to have um, support and and receive some some advice, so in time, he saw the situation more ba- in a more balanced way, and he came to me and he said i 've got it kamala i 've got a new mantra, and it really helps me when i 'm facing this person, and he 's giving me all these new ideas and I said, Well, what is it? And he said, "My new mantra is maybe he 's right' <laughs> and so and actually you know it was true he did have a lot of good ideas but I didn't want to throw it in his face you know and just asking him to come to it himself so his idea was maybe he's right actually that has helped me a lot in in various relationships and including my relationship with Steve you know Little does he know. I have to say that mantra. (laughs) You know, (laughs) maybe he's right. (laughs) (laughs) So later, um, we actually did the equanimity practice uh, during that month because we had a month of metta, a week of metta. Then we had, um, we went on to mudita, sympathetic joy, and. We did compassion, and then we did equanimity practice for a week. And so he said, you know what my what my equanimity phrase is? You know, there are various phrases, the main phrase is all beings are owners of their action. And um, all beings have their own journey. Um, this is how it is right now for me. This is how it is right now for you. You know, various phrases like that. So his phrase was right in action, you know, on the cushion and right in the kitchen. He would hear what has to be said and he'd say to himself, oh, well, that was his equanimity phrase. And I I didn't get it. And I said, well, why? Well, That's great, but why, why is it, oh, well? It's giving you a lot of balance. And he said, if I don't say, oh, well it's like, oh, hell. You know, so, so it was really helpful for me to kind of go deeper into that well of understanding. And that really helped him. So once in a while, that's what goes on in my own mind. It's, oh, well, it's just like this. We do what we can, but after we've done what we can, then we just have to let it go. Oh, well. But if that reactivity has already arisen, you know, that oh well isn't working or whatever equanimity um, practice that we're doing isn't really helping uh, in response to the outer situation and we feel inwardly that reactivity has already taken place, that is, that some aversion has arisen, some attachment has arisen, then it's good to look at it in this way, that now we have a second chance. The first chance already is gone by. You know, we've tried to develop equanimity in response to the outer situation, didn't work. So now reactivity is happening in our minds and our hearts. And that is one of the key places to put our equanimity practice right there where there's already some reactivity. So when attachment has already arisen, can we bring equanimity to that place? When aversion or fear or disgust or um, frustration has arisen, can we say, this is how it is right now in my heart? Never mind what's going on outside. But right in our own hearts, can we bring that measure of balance, of spaciousness. And instead of clamping down on that and adding more pain to it, can we open to that? Okay, this is what's going on. It's painful right now. And just with that honesty and just with that clarity, you'd be surprised how much the mind loves that. The mind loves honesty and clarity and really naming things as they are, seeing things as they are. And so there's some joy that comes out of that. There's some, uh, even if it's momentary relief, that can come out of that. And we're able to regain some balance. So I must admit that a lot for myself, a lot of equanimity practice is facing what's happening inwardly because it's so quick how it happens in response to the outward situation that there's just a lot of reactivity that's happening already that uh, the equanimity needs to come to that and know that in that moment. So when we see, when I see that there is reactivity happening when there's aversion, disgust, frustration, resentment, uh, fear, etc. Not not the kind of fear that we know we gotta, you know, run away from the mountain lion, or back up, not run away. Um, it's a kind of fear where it's it's um, a fear that's closing us down. It's a kind of fear that's not letting us see clearly. When that is happening inside, then can we be big around that? Can we be honest and accepting, truthful about that? So another word for accepting is can we be truthful, honest, that it's that that's actually happening? So as a mother of grown children, uh, it saved me so many times to... Notice that some reactivity is there, and not to open my mouth at that moment because something may come out that you know has made the situation worse, or um, I've seen that it has done that, and then I know that it can do that. So, when we see reactivity there, then we know that non action is called for, refraining from action at that time. Unless, of course, it's a matter of survival. But really being careful that we can come to some balance before we respond, and not out of reactivity. Not when we're seeing through the lens of an unwholesome state of mind. So it's not like balancing on this razor's edge, That's a precarious kind of balance where we feel all stiff and there's rigidity and fear. But it's more like this wide stance, like a mountain has a very wide stance. One feels steady and stable and grounded. And when that is this inner sense that we have, then we take action when we can. So it says in the text that the function of equanimity is to maintain the steadiness of mind. And, of course, we need this in our daily life as well as in our practice here on the cushion, that steadiness of mind, so helpful. In the ancient texts, uh, they uh, liken it to the mountain that I just spoke about that can experience the various weather patterns that happen around a mountain. And uh, the mountain is able to stay steady with what's happening. Of course, the mountain, unlike human beings, um, doesn't take that kind of action to do something about things. But this is the first moment of being taking in what's happening and staying steady with it. And... Opening to what's happening with the knowledge that whatever is arising is natural. It's natural because it is happening. It doesn't mean that it's good or that it's pleasant or that it's right, that it's righteous, but it's naturally occurring in the mind, in the body, in the heart. So we see the extremes and the subtleties of what happens to uh, uh, something like a mountain. the On one side we have like the snow and the cold. On the other side there's the sun and the heat. There's the wet season, the dry season. There's uh, the birth, the new life that comes up in, in the soil. And then there's the death, the decay, the dying out. There's the light, there's the darkness. And we can relate any of this to our lives as well, metaphors for our own life. So we stay with that balanced inner stability. If we can say, you know, one of my um, quiet equanimity practices is to say, this too is a part of life. And Steve and I were just recently remarking how... um, it it seems to be a period of time for us with with a lot of people around us are are going through difficulties, health experiences that are um, really challenging, very challenging matter of life and death, Um, family experiences that are extremely challenging, fires, houses burning down, they can be extreme. So it's not that we're cold and distant, but can we open our hearts and not close down? Can we just say, okay, this this is part of life. and And how can we respond when we can? So from that honest recognition, a lot of resilience can arise. Resilience is... Uh, factor or an an offshoot of equanimity that you know the the mind can be like bamboo and uh not break in in a storm we have um when i lived in a, a small town on maui we have an an elder there i don't know if she's still living but um japanese elder there and um I was talking to her one time and she said, we were talking about earthquakes because there, maybe there was an earthquake somewhere in the world and um, maybe it was a big one that was around here. And she said, you know, when there's an earthquake, you should go in your bamboo grove and stand there because I had a little bamboo grove in the backyard. And I uh, said, why? And she said, you know, that bamboo is so resilient and it has deep deep roots that go in the ground and usually when the ground is breaking uh it won't break around the it won't part around the bamboo grove and also she said do you notice when there is a storm that uh the these tall bamboo i have this um what's called green stripe bamboo and when there's a storm the tip, the top of it, which can be almost 40 feet tall, it goes even higher than that, I think, can bend over and the top can touch the ground and the bamboo won't break. It has that kind of resilience. When the storm is over and the wetness has come out of the leaves and the wind has died down, the the bamboo can become erect again. So this is a kind of stability and resilience that we can have with equanimity present in our lives. And it's not without the quality of loving-kindness. Loving-kindness and a deep sense of care are definitely there. It's why we, um, we notice what's going on before, in our hearts before we act. It takes a great deal of care to notice what's going on in our hearts first before we respond. It's called the unshakable balance of mind endowed with great care. The unshakable balance of mind endowed with great, great care. And oftentimes the Buddha would liken it to the kind of love that parents have for their children. You know, it's a love of, that includes letting them go into having confidence that they can take care of their own affairs letting them go into that. Um, it, <laughs> I must admit that that takes a lot of courage and love to let them go into their own uh, confidence of how they can handle their own lives. So it's said that equanimity gives metta its unconditional quality, meaning, you know, without equanimity in metta, we might say may you be happy but there might be attachment to the result of that phrase but with equanimity there it's just this complete offering this generosity of love that says may you be happy i fully offer that goodwill to you without any kind of attachment you don't have to be grateful for it it doesn't have to come true um You don't have to even show it, um, whatever, anything around that. But we can just fully offer that total care and goodwill to anyone. It's a high bar, but um, that's what equanimity does for metta. And metta also gives to equanimity. Without uh, metta, there wouldn't be the care to really take a look inside, to really care about the steps that we take uh, that, um, when we're free from any kind of unwholesome mind state. So it's accepting the ups and downs of life in ourselves, but also in others. It gives our friendship that unconditionality. Haven't we all been with friends that we're with them through thick and thin? and um, we are with them through difficult times and not give up on them. And I know some friends we just have to give up on sometimes, but um, there are times when we felt like that, when no matter what they're going through, we can stay with it. So this isn't a resignation like Okay, we accept how it is, accept the ups and downs and just we're like a doormat to life. It's not like that at all. It's truthfully seeing what's happening. I think that's a better way of of expressing it, not accepting it as uh being a doormat, but honestly seeing what's happening, opening to it in an honest way and admitting this is part and parcel of the process of life. There's, We're not going to have all wonderful things happen. We're not going to have all difficult things happen. It's uh, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, and all of that. So when... Um, When I was going through some of the difficult passages of my youngest daughter's teenage years, it was hard for, for everyone. Um, and uh, I'm sure that my, my youngest daughter... By the way, my youngest daughter gets a lot of royalties for my being <laughs> able to tell stories on her. <laughs> um, so this is um, approved by her that I tell this story. The latest thing she got was a purse from Italy. So <laughs> um, so she's, she's in the Dharma and she's done a couple of young adults courses. And she's doing um, her practice in, in her way now. And she knows what to do with meta, And so I'm sure that I've been in her difficult person category, <laughs> you know. And she's been in mine. I mean, plenty of times she's, you know, my children aren't always in the uh, dear friend, you know, family member, um, loved one. They, they get demoted sometimes too, you know, difficult person. And plenty of times I've had to use a um, kind of an equanimity understanding hooked on to my metta phrase with her. For example, when she was going through her difficult times, I would offer her as much as I could, may you be peaceful and happy, that, that goodwill. And with the understanding, sometimes with the actual phrase, And I accept that this is how it is for you right now. So just that openness that it is hard for you right now. And I wish you this goodwill of may you be happy. But accepting that you're not happy right now. And letting that be okay. You know, this is part of your process of life. Sometimes, with a lot of compassion, I may altogether skip the metta and um, say, all beings have their own journey. And, you know, I've seen it with, with all of the other three before this youngest one, that, boy, they have had their ups and downs. And just today, I was taking a little walk and thinking, my mother must have gone through a lot with me. Of course, I've had that thought many times, but it really, somehow today, it hit a deeper chord that, boy, she must have gone through a lot seeing me go through my life. I I've, I've, I feel like I've lived a lot of different lives, you know, and she's kind of seen me in different phases. So when Therese, this youngest one, Left home after graduating from high school um, where there was um there was a plan for her that she was going to go on to do something else and uh so the last day of her being at home or maybe it' was close to the last day, but it was her graduation day, and so she kind of tumbled into the room um our bedroom and and Steve was. Uh, my partner at that time had help, been helping me raise her since she was about fourteen, and um, so here she was, eighteen years old, and she'd often come into the room since she was a little girl. And in fact, I used to, I used to sit while I was nursing her, so she was always used to coming in when I was sitting, and I would just sit up in bed. That's that was how I would sit in the morning for various reasons. Um, It was just easy. And so she came in and she put her head down on my lap. And, you know, just remembering her, just holding her when she was small and I'd nurse her. And here she is now, her head's on my lap and her long legs are hanging over the, the side of the bed. She's, you know now she's about 5'10 or 5'11 or something tall, really tall like that, and wears these incredible high heels too, and so <laughs> I feel like a midget next to her, um, so I thought about the times, the wonderful times, and I thought about the hard times, you know, times she didn't come home, and, and she got into a couple of accidents with the car, and the boyfriend stuff, and all of that, the tattoos and the, you know, the piercing and <laughs> everything. And so, um, so there I was stroking her head and then, you know, some tears. And there's one side, there's one tear that's saying, don't go. You know, just remembering the, the loveliness and, and the beauty. And the other tear is saying... Please go <laughs> <laughs> and just the ability to be honest with that and to and to hold both sides you know that's that's the bigness of equanimity that's a sense that I'm trying to impart to you how that equanimity can hold everything and not push away or hold on, but to be able to see. Like with children, all beings have their own process. All beings have their own journey. And um, it's up and down. So it's that spaciousness and expansiveness of a balanced heart that gives us... I love what His Holiness the Dalai Lama says about it. This immeasurable inclusivity... Immeasurable inclusivity. It's like we include everything. Everything is part of life. That it's it's beautiful and it's difficult, too. So, can we pervade netta to all beings without that discrimination or exclusivity? Which is why... You know, at the end of our metta, I ask you to put all the beings next to each other, the neutral one, the one that we may not care for so much, the, the ones that we might feel some attachment to, and the ones we might have some aversion to, towards. Can we put them all together and offer all of them metta without discrimination, without exclusivity? Can it be this immeasurable inclusivity? so that all the barriers can be broken down. So it's characterized as this evenness of heart towards all beings in metta. Evenness of heart towards all beings in our metta practice. And that's a great protection because when we have this evenness of heart, it brings in some wisdom, wisdom, um, It brings in the wisdom of that when there is gain or loss, joy and sorrow, etc., we see that this is natural. It's a natural part of the cycle of life. And so when it happens on our cushion, we see, too, that this is natural. What's coming up is natural. Unwholesome, uncomfortable, uneasy states of mind come up and it's just part of life. Can can it be received in, in that way and not add another layer, not add that second arrow of pain to it? So we don't get caught in delusion by covering it up and not being honest with ourselves. We don't get caught in attachment if it's pleasurable. We don't get caught in aversion if it's uh, not pleasurable. So, those are the kinds of reactivities that happen. So, then we have a chance to respond graciously. Um, a lot of what happens in the world can trigger fear, helplessness, pity, and sorrow. And a lot of times I find myself already there. And we're no help to anyone in the world when we're in that place. And that often gives me, that's a kind of wisdom that kind of wakes me up and says, you know, um, I have to admit that I'm feeling that way. Just hands down, I'm feeling that way. But then some wisdom comes in and says, you know, I can't be any help to my children or to my community, um, to anyone around me, if I go around feeling like this, if I get bogged down in it. So it, it just helps me to get more balanced understanding that kind of wisdom. I may not always respond to that or come to in that way, but sometimes it does help. So when we say all beings have their journey, or this too is part of your journey. For example, when I'm um, having some equanimous response to my children's situation or a situation in the community around me, it doesn't mean that I don't do anything. Of course I act. Um, So included in that is, this is part of your journey right now. I'll do everything I can to help you. That's part of that whole equanimous response. I'll take every step I can to help you. But still, I'll do my best to not have attachment to the result of whatever I'm doing to help you. I can't. I don't have complete control over whether it's really going to help you, over whether you're really going to turn out all right with my help or anybody's help. But still, we take that action. So that's part of equanimity understanding as well. So the Buddha described this quality as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will, when he talked about equanimity that sense of bigness to include everything, not to exclude anything, protects us from delusion. So um, that's why it's so important in this particular practice on the sitting cushion, because equanimity is protecting us from delusion. It's helping that clarity. It's, it's supporting mindfulness to mirror without any lens, the lens of delusion, attachment, or aversion, to, to, to reflect what's happening as clearly as possible, to see the dangers of the situation as well as the goodness of a situation, so that we know, we can discern what will lead to more harm, what will lead to harmony, and we act or not act accordingly accordingly. So the Buddha said, when liberation of mind by equanimity is developed, no limiting action remains there. None persists there. Just as a vigorous trumpeteer could make him or herself heard without difficulty in the four quarters, so too, when equanimity is developed, no limiting action remains there. None persists there. So I want to make a big point of this and repeat, no limiting action remains there. Because many times people think that equanimity is saying just saying, oh well, you know, and then dropping to the ground like a doormat and letting people step all over you. So I want to make it very clear that it's not that at all. It's just this ability to open the mind Take in clearly what's happening. And in that taking in clearly, then respond. So an example of this would be, um, I was trying to remember an example that came from my past, um, from an actual experience. When I was living in that small town where that bamboo grove was growing, it's a little town called Hali'i Mailei, and I lived on the corner, and on the corner um, I could see there was a, a, there was a stop sign, so the cars would stop there before turning either left or right. And I could sit in my living room and see the cars that were there turning, and I would know who's coming in or out of the neighborhood because we lived kind of inside. And so um, there was a Volkswagen car, and the car stopped, and it didn't, it didn't move for a while and I heard some noises coming from the car and then I heard some shouting coming from the car and then I heard some um, screaming coming from the car and some crying and a, and a child crying and somebody was being hurt. So I didn't stand there and say, this is part of your journey. All beings are owners of their karma this is what's happening right now, you know. Of course, that with just taking in that situation and seeing that, yes, this is happening, someone's being hurt, I ran out of my uh, door and went to the car and went to the passenger seat of the car and a little, um, I think it was a little boy, four, five, six years old in the back, was crying somebody in the passenger seat was being hurt and i um, opened the door and i pulled the person in the passenger seat out so i'm just really taking action and i was uh, saying in a loud voice to the other person stop stop it and i I, it was fine you know i wasn't going to get hurt i was on the other side so just pulling that person out helping that person out helping the the child out and taking the, those people to my home and the driver of the car went away and so i talked to the person and i said um, you know it's it's really good to call the authorities now and to get help has this happened before yes it's happened before well maybe we should call someone. Would you like to call someone like um, the police or would you like to call someone for help or and get this taken care of so it won't happen again? And the person said, no, I don't want to do that. And I tried to urge the person, and the person said, no, I don't want to do that. I'll call somebody to pick me up that's from my... So as much as I tried to help, you know, keep the person from danger in that moment, try to help more, I did what I could and I just had to let go. And that person had to go on to that person's own, whatever that person had to face. So we take action, but we, we can't hang on to the result. I can't keep that person completely safe in that person's life. But we still take action the indirect enemy of um, of equanimity is indifference it 's apathy it 's when you would just stand there and not do anything about it. Some people has have said that it feels like callousness, although that isn 't in the ancient texts, but it can get to that like a feeling of callousness. Um, so this is when you're not really doing anything. You're not really opening to it. And in a way, that's a reaction too. So reactivity is the far enemy, and that has the two parts of attachment or aversion. And this indifference is the near enemy because it can seem like equanimity. It can seem like yeah, I'm really cool with this. It's alright. I'm really okay. But inside we're really not okay. It's kind of like covering it up. It's delusion. The near enemy is big time delusion. It's um, you know, it's apathy, indifference. We're not really seeing it clearly. And reactivity is um either attachment or aversion. So this Equanimity protects us from the delusion of indifference or apathy. People who are exemplars of this are His Holiness the Dalai Lama and taking the steps he needs to take for um, for his people and the, a model for all beings everywhere. Mother Teresa, of course, nothing stopped her from doing what she felt she needed to do to help the poor. There were many, many obstacles as I've learned more about her life, but nothing stopped her. Martin Luther King, one of the uh, great beings that we have all had the honor of living in his lifetime, including Mother Teresa and His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Aung San Suji. None of them are doormats. All of them doing what they need to do in, in the right timing, with an open mind and an open heart in their lives, so the main characteristic is resting the mind before it falls into extremes. So that's what equanimity is. It results in this strong, gracious presence, exemplified by Ang San Suji. She has this very noble presence Um, I've never really met her in person but being close to people around her, in fact one of her teachers I don't know if it's her only teacher is one of our teachers Seda Upandita so we hear about her and and her nobility she's like the ballast of a ship that keeps the boat upright in strong winds um, representing A lot of goodness for the people of Burma. She can stand in the middle path and see all... From the middle path we can see all sides. This is what that balance helps us to do, to be more in the middle path and to see all sides. See clearly what causes harm, what causes harmony, and take the right path. So... Also, equanimity has great importance in terms of accessing and deepening wisdom in our practice of uh, liberation. The Buddha would say that for one who develops deep abiding equanimity and this is quoting the Buddha it is a natural law to know and see things as they really are to know the Dhamma. This is Equanimity is often called the gateway to the unconditioned, the gateway to Nibbana, a natural law to know and see things as they are, to see the Dhamma. So it's a protection, not only from being overwhelmed by the eight worldly outer winds of life, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, um, joy and sorrow, fame and disrepute, but also a protection from what happens inside. When we see that reactivity inside, can we bring equanimity even there? So equanimity to outer circumstances, equanimity towards inner circumstances. So this is what it asks of us. How can we be, be open to the outer conditions of the world and the response to the outer conditions of the world, our inner response, how can we continue to stay open, balanced, serene, loving, patient, compassionate? There's a vision I hold, or at least a memory of what it's like to experience this um, one of the last times I was in India, and I had gone to visit my uh, one of my teachers, Anagarika Munindra. He was getting old, and I wanted to spend some time with him before he passed away. He did pass away a few years ago. So when I went to India, one of his wishes is that we would take um, a boat from Varanasi and go down the Ganges River because he wanted me to see these burning ghats, you know, where they burned the dead bodies. And then he would say that he wanted me to see the the dead bodies floating on the river. Only your Dharma teacher would want that for you. (laughs) And (laughs) um, it's part, you know, uh, it's part of our practice to see death and really be open to it. So he wanted me to have this experience. And um, so it was our last day in India, and we were in this you know, ancient city of Varanasi. We rented a boat, and I had two friends with me, and um, Dharma friends with me. And, and so we got on the boat. It was before dawn. And um, across the Ganges... Um, the light was coming over the horizon of the river and the, the sun was beginning to come up and then as we were going down the river this uh, sun was coming up on the left and on the right were the burning gets. and so I looked to um, one side And this great light, you know, representing new life, was coming up. And it was really exquisitely beautiful, the light over the Ganges. And then to my right was a lot of sorrow. There were some bodies burning already. We were close enough, and there were families around. And um, so there was death, new life, and there was death. And then... Beside me was my teacher, one of my teachers, my first Dharma teacher, and a great teacher for me. And um, it's said that one of the four great things that one can have in one's life is to find a teacher. So I'm I'm really really grateful for that. And he was like a son to me too. He he would call me mom. You know, it was like a way that made him close to me. I think. And he always said he couldn't be around his mother so much, so he wanted me to be his mom. <laughs> so I was holding his hand like a child, and um, there was a lot of joy in in being able to be with someone like that. You know, thats I think that's pretty rare, and that's really a wonderful thing, I have a lot of gratitude for that. So the joy of having that and then the sorrow that I see so my mind and heart just had to open to take it all in you know the the birth and the death the joy and the sorrow the beauty of life and also the rawness of it you know India is so beautiful because it's so raw you just everything's in your face and so the wideness, the bigness of that gives me a great um, feeling of equanimity, of the ability to, for that moment, to open myself to all of life that way. It isn't always that way, but um, sometimes it is. And it can be for you, can be for all of us that way. So I want to end with this. <clears throat> this is from the Venerable Achan Sumedo from the Thai tradition, and he's. Uh, this is what he wrote. Um, this was on an invitation for the inauguration of the Amaravati Monastery in England. The mind is like space; there is room in it for everything or nothing. We always have a perspective once we know the space of the mind, its emptiness, armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing at all. All things can come and go without being caught in reaction or resistance. So this is a description of equanimity so let's sit for a moment Thank you for listening to the Dhamma.